the thing is, when you burst into tears in your boss's office, if that's ever happened to you, which has happened to me for sure, you didn't wake up that morning thinking, I hope I'm going to have a complete emotional breakdown that day. That happened because you had to release something. You needed to get something out and you had something that was building and you felt sad or angry or fearful or whatever the emotion behind it was. It needed to be released. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On today's episode, The Feminine Revolution. Isn't that nice? In my previous life, back when I worked in the tech industry, the thing that I dreaded most might surprise you. And that was those dreaded morale events. It was always something like go-karting or, you know, they drop you off in the woods for eight hours of paintball or a 16-hour foosball tournament. And if you've ever met me, it would take you about 10 seconds to realize that that's not really my thing. You know, fine. Yes, tech teams are mostly men. That's no surprise. And gender disparities in tech are a whole other episode. So, of course, the morale events were gendered, too. You know, and I'm sure there are women who like those things. Great. And I applaud that. But I'm not into go-karting or foosball. And that's fine. But the problem is, when women don't like these things, how confident are we in admitting that in a room full of men? We're often fitting in with the guys as rewarded. During one of my very last morale events, the team manager was taking a vote on what the team should do for the next morale event. And, you know, he put the typical events on the whiteboard. He wrote, you know, go-karting or, you know, running down a cliff with a Frisbee or something like that. And then he asked for more suggestions. So I timidly raised my hand and I suggested that we go see a rom-com, followed by a few hours at the spa and then some cocktails. There was this silence in the room. And then they all burst into laughter, you know, like, oh, Jen, you're so funny. You know, and then I laughed too. You know, although it kind of wasn't a joke, I really needed a spa day and a cocktail, frankly. You know, there was one point in my career though, and this only happened once, where I had a woman as a manager and our entire team of six engineers were all women. That's so rare in the tech industry. And I remember when she scheduled the first morale event that I had on this team, she said, you know, this may never happen again. She actually scheduled a spa day. And then we went out for lunch at this fancy tea room where we had, you know, tea and little cakes. And it was, it was great. And that's what this episode is about. It's about the internal conflict that women often feel in expressing their femininity while balancing that with appearing strong. We feel that in a world where so many things that we do are policed, in a world where we feel pressure to to wear pantsuits to be taken seriously, or to not cry in professional settings, or to, to not show kindness and warmth, because things that are coded as feminine are seen as weak or as bad. So my guests today, Amy Stanton and Catherine Connors, authors of the book, The Feminine Revolution, are here to question all of that, to encourage authenticity, and that our powers and our strengths are best expressed when we can be our authentic selves without being judged or criticizing ourselves. You know, this book, The Feminine Revolution, it really made me think about all of the messages I've been subconsciously sending myself about what it meant to be strong, and frankly, how I sometimes judged other women. Well, I'm done with all of that. Thanks to Amy and Catherine. So here is Amy describing the moment that she and Catherine met and realized that they really needed to write this book and that they wanted to write it together. Absolutely. Our mutual friend, Jimmy, I was telling him I was interested in writing a book about femininity. And he said, you absolutely have to speak with Catherine Connors. And so we had this breakfast. And by the way, this was probably four years ago. So quite a bit of time has passed. And we had a very long exciting conversation about femininity and it went in a million different directions and felt like we could have literally been there all day. Obviously it took a few years before we sat down again early last year. And every year I was saying, I've got to do the book this year. I've got to do the book this year. This is the year. And then I said, Catherine, why don't we just do this together? 
And so I'd say those were the two pivotal moments when we first met and realized we had so much in common and so much to talk about and a shared vision and passion. And then when we finally just did it, we said, (laughs) we're going to do this. Oh, that's funny. Why femininity and not feminism, especially, you know, now in this age that we're in, you know, I think you said what, three or four years ago, you know, we were at the height of, you know, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. But you know, that's what was really striking to me about the title. It's femininity and not necessarily feminism. What was missing in that dialogue around femininity? Well, we really felt each in our own way, but it was certainly one of a big piece of our early conversations was that that the conversation around feminism is obviously super duper important. We are both passionate feminists. You know, we lead with that all the time. But what we felt was missing from the conversation was the question of how we understand women's experiences as women and girls' experiences as girls and all the cultural and social stereotypes around what it means to be female. So we we really felt that, you know, as long as we were talking about feminism without talking about all the biases that we have culturally and socially around women and girls' experiences and place in the culture, that that we weren't really getting at the entirety of the issues, you know, and that, that missing piece for both of us was summed up in the question of femininity. How do we think of women and girls' experiences? How do we think about the condition and experience of being female? How do we think about all the social and cultural stereotypes, especially to your point about the, our initial conversations happening? Um, and, and we were sort of peak ideation around the book during the 2016 uh, election, really looking at what's getting in the way of women overcoming the leadership gap and the income gap and all of these gaps. You know, why was Hillary, despite all of her obvious powers and strengths, facing off against somebody who was very clearly just, you know, shouldn't have even been on the same stage as her. And, you know, for both of us, it kept coming back to this question of how do we think about women, right? That Hillary would have to put on a pantsuit and get up on the hustings and perform masculinity in a way in, in order to take on those leadership positions. And certainly for me, that was a that was a key piece of the issue was that it was really impossible to talk about when we were going to get a female president or more female CEOs or, you know, all of us as women women feel more empowered in their daily lives, if we weren't talking about how we could do that as the kinds of women, you know, that, that we want to be. I think another piece of it is also we, we fully applaud and embrace all the conversations about feminism and female empowerment and equal rights, all of which are super important. But those are all big picture societal conversations that require a lot of different changes and lots of different moving pieces in order to affect change. Conversation about femininity allows us each individually to define femininity for ourselves and then to take action and to actually take control of this power that we believe we have already. We don't need anyone to give us, but that we may not be using or exercising because we believe that these feminine qualities are weak or we've perceived that all our lives. And so we're here to say, actually, no, the feminine qualities that you possess and overall your femininity, these are powers. These are powerful. And if you can actually tap into those, that's a start at a big cultural shift. We don't need to rely on everyone else to make the change. We can actually take it into our own hands here and now. I think one of the most interesting things about reading your book was that It reminded me of that when we do celebrate women for being strong, we celebrate those behaviors that mirror male behaviors, right? Or what are typically seen as male behaviors, you know, those strengths. And I'm thinking of, you know, that that poster of Rosie the Riveter, you know, in order for women to be celebrated as strong, they have to, to behave like what we think men should behave like. And that's exactly it. You know, it's, you know, there, and, and to be clear, neither one of us believe that you know, that, 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 that masculinity is entirely problematic, right? That obviously there are lots of things that can be unpacked around the, the issues and is sometimes toxicity of masculinity, but it, it's, it's not about tackling masculinity as masculinity. It's about looking at how we are framing and understanding femininity against and alongside and in balance with. And to your point, it, it's exactly that. You know, my work at, when Amy and I started talking, you know, was really digging into a lot of the messaging and marketing around girls. And it was one of the things that was really bothering me. 
And I think one of the reasons why Jimmy insisted we had to talk was that we were continually putting models of strength in front of girls that reflected masculine stereotypes and telling them at the same time that things that might be coded as quote unquote girly were somehow lesser than and weaker than, right? And it seemed to me that the implicit messaging there was that in order to be strong, in order to be powerful, you had to in some ways become boy-like right? Or in the case of women become more masculine to my point about Hillary from earlier, that masculine power has become so the defi- that definitions, those definitions have become so pervasive that we just think of them as human, right? We've, we've almost degendered the masculine side of it and decided that power just looks like this and it's a masculine look. And we both felt, I certainly felt that it didn't, it, it didn't give us space personally or collectively, um, to, to really think about what our own experience is as women or if for, for girls as girls. How can we find our own power, locate our own power in who we are, rather than feeling as though the only path to any kind of strength or self-assertion or power is to enact or perform masculine models of that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talk about, you know, the messaging that we give to girls. And, and you know, Catherine, you mentioned there's an anecdote in your book about conversations you have with your daughter about her wanting to be be referred to as a tomboy, right? Can you talk a bit about that that exchange? That that exchange was a was a really interesting one for I, I I've learned so much so much of my own journey around understanding and thinking about femininity, both you know as an idea and a concept, and as in wrapping my head and heart around my own ha, has really you know been pushed along by my daughter and to some extent by my son as well. That particular conversation, she she was she was really trying to place herself in an identity. And because she recognized and had been told, you know, by friends and family members that a lot of the things that she liked were guy things, boy things, that that she was a tomboy, that that's the word that you apply to girls who don't conform to feminine stereotypes. And it struck me because I, you know, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to the word tomboy before, but when it came up in conversation with her, I just felt this sort of visceral negative response, you know, that I I didn't want her to feel as though in order to define herself or to understand who she was in her own power, that it had to be defined on masculine terms. When girls exhibit those characteristics or actions or stereotypes, we we put a boy label on them. And it just, you know, it it struck me as really kind of core to the problem that we wanted to get at this, this question of not even being able to have a language around girls being adventurously feminine, because if they're adventurous and daring and strong, then they're de facto tomboys. So, you know, what's really interesting is that when we, I have a son too, and he's a little bit younger, but when we start to hear the gender stereotypes mirrored, from our children. I think that's when we start to, to realize what as a society and what as a culture we're feeding them. We feed them these kind of rigid gender frameworks, even when we aren't realizing it. When your child starts to mirror back to you, well, boys are this way and girls are this way. We see how often those messages are being given through television and through film and through cartoons, right? So I always think that's really interesting to watch. It is. I mean, it's it's pervasive. It's why it can seem, I, I think, in this goes to whether or not one is a parent, that how we can see stereotypes being enacted and reenacted, you know, even when we think we're pushing back against them or critical of them or resisting them is that they're just, they're just, they're so, so deeply embedded in our culture that it feels like, you know, we don't even have the opportunity to ask, certainly women and girls, I feel don't have the opportunity to ask, what does it mean to be feminine, right? What does my femininity look like? Because we just, we, we've been inundated, you know, in, in very, very pervasive ways, you know, with certain stereotypes that just seep in so that you can have a boy like my son, for example, who's now 10, who lives in, you know, has grown up in this incredibly open-minded household, right? you know, really internalize the idea that he shouldn't like princess dresses or My Little Pony or that, that his sensitivity and his compassion and his, his, his very deep love for his friends is something that he needs to be circumspect about because he's, he's getting those messages from the culture. And that's the thing that, you know, Amy and I, you know, at the core of it really wanted to tackle with this book is like really look at why do we why do we automatically frame so many of these characteristics and these stereotypes and these ideas and these actions as somehow lesser than um, when we know in our hearts that they really aren't? 
Yeah, it happened so young too. My son, he's seven now, but when he was about four, I remember it struck me when he when he came to me and he said, you know, mommy's glamorous and she likes furniture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anyway, so um, Amy, you talk about having to reconcile your professional image with your vulnerability. Were you ever critical of yourself for expressing femininity in a context, especially a professional context where you felt it, it wasn't appropriate? I think it's conditioned to be the case because, and I, I don't think it necessarily starts in the workplace and even building on what you were talking about in terms of the messages that kids are receiving so much of it, even parents aren't conscious of because there there's language that's ingrained in the way that we operate on a day-to-day basis. So as a young girl, I remember being told I was sensitive, Amy, don't be so sensitive. And then it recurred in the workplace where quickly in performance reviews or tough meetings, someone say, don't take it personally, don't be too sensitive. And I know so many other women who've had the exact same experience. What's the effect of that? It causes us to toughen up, to build a shell, to create this armor, because we think that's the way that we're supposed to operate in the workplace. We are modeling ourselves after male leaders, because for the longest time, leaders were male. So it makes perfect sense that we would take on these more masculine qualities. And frankly, as Catherine said earlier, I'm a big fan of the masculine qualities, my assertiveness, my directness, my ability to tell it how it is. These are things that I would say are more male or I've modeled after my male mentors or bosses and they really do serve me, but maybe they don't serve me all the time. And, and have I, because I've taken on those qualities in some ways actually repressed my sensitivity because I've been told to toughen up and have I lost touch with it or or hidden it even from myself in ways that's not really working for me because ultimately my sensitivity and my emotionality and even the fact that I cry easily, these are wonderful qualities. And we actually talk about how each of those are really powerful. And they haven't been thought of that way for the longest time. And and it starts again with me because I haven't thought of it as powerful. And now as I start to think of these things in a different way, the process of even writing the book has been so beautiful really because there have been naturally moments that have been challenging or stressful. And at those moments, instead of going into my normal fight or flight, got to be tough here, got to stand my ground. And by the way, still did that, do that sometimes. <laughs> but um, I definitely would take a pause and say, how do I handle the situation in a feminine way? How do I bring grace and softness to this situation? How can that serve me? And, and again, it's not a perfect thing. It's not like I w- woke up one day and suddenly was able to start practicing femininity in 24-7. But the as you start to introduce these things and really, it's really reclaiming them or reconnecting with them. I've found them to be incredibly powerful. And I think it's, it does change the way I feel throughout the day. Cause I don't know about you, but certainly I've had a number of moments throughout my career. Some of them I am aware of, even as I think about it, where I don't even know if it's a, that I lost my temper, but I would have, I, I just would have handled things in a more, uh, maybe aggressive or more, a tougher way. And I'd leave that call or that meeting and I would sort of feel bad about it later in the day and think, oh, like that really wasn't me. That's not how I want to handle those situations in the future. Now, of course, that's a learning experience. And even just the consciousness around the fact that that wasn't what I wanted to do in the future was great. But I don't know that I had another approach. So, now I do. And and I think one of the reasons Catherine and I outlined as many tools as we did throughout the book is because we really want, not just for ourselves <laughs> to have these tools, but to be able to share these tools with other women and even men that can actually start to put this into practice in a day-to-day basis. Because the, the fact is, some of this is very conscious, some of it's subconscious, some of it's unconscious, some of it is, we are, we are, Uh, sort of uncovering as we go. And that's the exciting part. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the things that I went through when going through each chapter of your book. I would start off the chapter saying, oh, you know, I don't do that. <laughs> and then I would read it and I'd read your your own stories, like the one where you said, Amy, where you said to yourself, you thought that you were too much, right? That you were you know, showing too many emotions. And I was like, oh, well, I've never done that. But then, <laughs> then as I read the chapter, I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. And I remember this moment in college and I was, I was you know, really young and, you know, I had a crush on an older guy in college. And I remember thinking, you know, the problem is my emotion you know, rain it in, Jennifer, <laughs> just rain those emotions in. And I remember even trying to lower my voice to sound stronger. Right. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you forget about these things because they seep into your subconscious, right? Because that's what we're told we need to be to be stronger and to be successful. Anyhow. Exactly. Exactly. And that, I love the way you describe your experience with the book, because we've found that to be the case with a lot of women who at first either think, you know what, this, this may not really apply to me. Either I have my femininity totally under control, or <laughs> I, or I don't want to embrace my my femininity. You know, th- those are the those are the two types of people that have had the most surprising experiences with the book so far. Where that they that was their entry point, and then they actually found a whole new way of thinking about it, and that's exciting. You know, because so much of this is subtlety and nuance. And it's really about going through the day and observing where these more masculine qualities are serving us, where they might not be, where we're holding back, where we're not allowing ourselves to be our full selves. Because I think everybody would agree we're going to be our best if we are our authentic selves. And so this is another way at getting at that and figuring out who that is. Yeah, you know, back to the conversations about our children. And I think about my reaction to that. But when my son, you know, said that I was glamorous, you know, my first reaction was, that, you know, hey, I'm not glamorous, you know, because I wanted him to see me as strong. But, it, but you know what, I am glamorous. And I'm fine with that. And I love furniture. And that's totally okay. <laughs> that's totally okay. He's right, right? <laughs> but that's important when you think about what you are modeling to him, right? Is that, that, that these things can go together, that you can be glamorous and love furniture and be strong, right? That that's as important a message to boys as it is to girls, you know, and to other women and to other men, that we can be complex, we can be all these things, that to be powerful doesn't mean to just a- adopt a masculine posture and lower your voice and have your emotions under control and be using your right brain and all of these things, that it can be this wonderful, glorious, beautiful mix of glamorousness and dreaminess and and assertiveness and emotionality and 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 all of these things together rather than putting them onto you know this sort of binary table of here are all the strong things that are by the way masculine on one side and here are all the feminine things you know all the the weaker things or softer things which are by the way feminine on the other it allows us to be more who we truly are to you know to Amy's point about authenticity i mean it's truly where we can, you know, I, I think experience and enact, you know, our own power in the most meaningful way. And it happens that in order to get at that authentic experience, we believe like we, we have to ask these really gendered questions. We have to really ask, you know, what does it mean to be authentically me as a woman, you know, who wants to be powerful as a woman, you know, in her own way? Yeah. Just to be clear, I was 18 when I tried to lower my voice. So <laughs> there's actually there's actually really interesting um, science on um, research on on voice modulation, you know, and it, it's just we, we do human beings do respond to lower voices as more authoritative, right? But that's millennia of social conditioning, right? To Amy's point leaders, public leaders have always been men. So we associate with lower masculine voices with leadership and we associate higher voices with caregiving. Yeah. So one of your chapters is titled Be Emotional, right? And so how do you advise women, especially now where women are seeking, you know, higher leadership roles, especially in government, right? With the last, you know, the the midterm elections, how do you advise women to be emotional when we're still punished for being emotional and seek power? Oh, everyone loves the be emotional chapter. <laughs> it's true. You know, and, and I think it all comes back to this exploration that we need to do individually, because for each person, being emotional is going to have its own version. Being emotional could be showing someone that you're happy to see them. It could be 
allowing your passionate views about what a client should do in a client meeting to come through. It could be a political leader showing that they really truly care about an issue, but in a way that doesn't seem angry, but in a way that seems loving and kind. You know, these are, these are, there's so many different ways to express emotion. And I think as we've developed this armor, we as women that are trying to thrive in a man's world, as one would say, we are showing less and less of it. And it may, we may not even be aware of it. You know, obviously there's a chapter on crying. I'm a big advocate <laughs> for crying and I could talk about crying all day because <laughs> I think that as that's the one that has been so stigmatized in a way that people are horrified when they cry in the workplace. You know, that's really just the most embarrassing thing that can happen. I mean, as I'm saying that, of course, I can think of other things that are maybe more embarrassing, but but very few. And I think that's because that's the ultimate demonstration of emotion and also a loss of control, uh, which we, by the way, also advocate for. So <laughs> the thing is, when you burst into tears in your boss's office, if that's ever happened to you, which has happened to me for sure, you didn't wake up that morning thinking, I hope I'm going to have a complete emotional breakdown that day. That happened because <laughs> you had to release something. You needed to get something out and you had something that was building and you felt sad or angry or fearful or whatever the emotion behind it was. It needed to be released. And there, the worst part of it is so many times when we cry, we spend so much more time focused on the fact that we were crying than on what the actual issue was that caused us to cry. So we lose sight of whatever could have actually been the content that could have brought us closer to the person across the table. So as an example, I had a very emotional performance review once, which I really look back on and I think, oh, I'm, you know what? I, I was so embarrassed by the crying because I was crying to this very tough boss of mine. And I became obsessed with that in a way that I think allowed her to fixate on it too. Now, I knew she was uncomfortable, but instead of using it as an opportunity to say, look, the reason I'm this emotional is because I care so much about this job and I want to thrive and I want to get this right. And I thought I was going to get a bigger bonus or I was going to get promoted more quickly. And I want you to tell me what I need to do to, in order to do that. And and explaining the reason behind it and creating some context, allowing us then to have a really productive conversation. That would have been great. Instead, <laughs> I think I just got lost in the crying part. <laughs> and then I think she did too. So, so part of it's coming up with tools and each of us will have our own way, you know, as we've talked about before, sometimes you need to excuse yourself, you know, but, but it is human to cry. And I did work for these two very powerful men when I was working on New York's Olympic bid, and they came from banking and politics. They were extremely hardcore, definitely more hardcore than anyone I'd ever worked for. And they were real straight shooters. They would tell you exactly how they felt at any given moment. At times they'd even yell. And Believe it or not, I was refreshed by that because I'd come from some work environments with women who were sometimes a bit petty or talking about each other behind their backs, not telling each other what was really going on. I never really trusted them as a result of it. In this case, I fully trusted them. And, and honestly, I've in a lot of ways modeled my leadership style after them. And it didn't stop me from crying. I definitely cried to them. And I'm not sure because they came from politics and banking, they'd seen a lot of crying, to be honest with you. So it was a real shocker for them in the beginning. But then we got used to it because they understood where it was coming from. I was exhausted. I was giving it my all. I cared so deeply about this. And honestly, the more acceptable it was for me to cry, the less I did it. So it's a really interesting, <laughs> it's an ex interesting example of how if you create an environment where these things are welcome, they can be used in really practical and useful ways. But we've been shoving these things down in a way that honestly, I don't, I think they need to come out somehow. So how are we going to do that? That's the real question. It really is destigmatizing to Amy's point. You know, it, it's a measure of how stigmatized these things are that, that we automatically go to the extremes that when we see a chapter called be emotional or cry openly, um, we go directly to the, oh, you know, overwhelming emotion or 
crying and rending your garments in the streets, right? We think of these things in terms of extremes and, and we go directly to the shame that we feel around them when we've experienced them ourselves in what we think of as extreme ways. And what we're trying to do is to, you know, is to, is to pull it back and say, let's ask ourselves, right? What does it look like to just experience our emotions, you know, in a balanced way and not be afraid of them. To Amy's point, it's like if, if you get more comfortable with quote unquote being emotional or crying openly, then then you actually do it less, right? Because you're 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 more in touch with it, that you've you become more balanced in your in your experience of these things. But we've so like we've just culturally decided largely because these these things are so coded as as feminine and female that that they're weak, that they're shameful, that they should only um, you know, that they should only be expressed or undertaken in private, you know, that we, we've just loaded on this baggage that doesn't give us space to really think about how valuable they can be. That like being in tune with your emotions and being willing to express your emotions reasonably in a work environment, you know, is a powerful indicator of what's going on in the workplace. And if more of us did that, especially those of us, you know, certainly in the business context that manage teams or that run businesses that, that are able to shape those cultures, I, I think we can powerfully influence the extent to which we can destigmatize these things, you know, and make them more acceptable, you know, um, perhaps even, you know, to some extent celebrated in the workplace, you know, and in our homes and in our lives with our friends and in social life in general. Yeah, you know, what I think is ironic about that is that crying, you know, is is a healthier expression of emotion than say, you know, punching through a wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yet women are exactly. criticized for that. Yeah. Uh, nobody ever says you're being too rational. Right. <laughs> but we're constantly saying you're too emotional, you're too sensitive, you're too this, you're too that. You know, and most of the things we say you're too XYZ, not all the time, but most of the time it's a it's a it's a feminine coded stereotype, you know. And to your point, it's like we don't, you know, we we don't worry about the rationality or assertiveness, you know, or when men do some of these things, we call it passion, yeah. right? You know, we give it a more flattering term. And so really the argument is, let's just rethink them, right? Not everything is going to apply to every person, every woman in the same way, you know, but, but let's give ourselves space and permission to ask ourselves, you know, what is my experience of these things, you know, and how do I make it work for me? Yeah. So let's talk about motherhood again, but in a different context, because Catherine, you talk about your journey into motherhood and you start off by describing how you never played with dolls. Was that considered a badge of strength for you? Was it a point of pride? I, I think so. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think so. Um, I, I, I think that it was a point of pride for me, although I wasn't aware of it as a child, that I was, um, that, that I was tougher. My parents often described me as resilient, right? You know, I, I, I will say I loved Barbies, right? But I, my Barbies were spies you know, <laughs> and double agents and they had adventures. Um, I, I never liked the baby dolls and like the bottles and all that stuff. My sister did. Um, and, and I do think that there was sort of, I, I think that I was responding to subtle cues, you know, from my parents and from the world around me, you know, that, that I was somehow going to be different, you know, anticipating years before Gillian Flynn's coinage of the capital C, capital G trademark cool girl, right? You yeah. know, that, you know, that, that uh, extraordinary girl, you know, a girl who's going to go places and do things is not going to be like other girls, right? Because being girly is an obstacle to those things. So I, I do think that, that, that for me, you know, in, in my childhood, in my youth, there, there were ways in which I was very consciously um, sort of adopting a posture. And so I, you know, I was, I mean, right up and basically until the moment my husband and I decided to have children, you know, I, I wasn't entirely sure that I was going to have children. I'd never really aspired to be a mother and I would never have described myself as particularly mothering, right? I still wouldn't. <laughs> um, you know, but what's why I think it's interesting, you know, the interesting piece for us about that chapter was that it was very, very important that we established at the outset that we weren't talking about biological motherhood, right? That we were talking about nurture and caregiving and that we saw that as, you know, a, a, as a characteristic and an action and an expression that is open to, 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 to any human person with or without ovaries or the capacity or desire to give birth, right? And that's the first thing. And that deconstructing motherhood required taking that posture because all the practices of motherhood, of caring, of nurturing have, have baggage because of the association with, you know, 
mommies and babies, right? You know, like we've so infantilized it and we've so problematized motherhood and made it this like super private lady thing, you know, that we've lost sight of how powerful nurture can be and how powerful and important caregiving is. And, you know, the possibilities, you know, in business and politics and social life and everything, you know, if we allowed ourselves to feel proud of our, you know, of our capacity for nurture and our willingness to, to, to give care. Right. And I'm really glad that you separated that in that chapter. You separated the idea of being an actual mother, you know, actually producing a child with the idea of being nurturing, right. And, you know, having the qualities of, of being a mother and that you don't actually have to literally be a mother mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to use those, use the power in those qualities. So that was really good. Yeah. I'll say, I mean, the most nurturing women I know, um, and I include Amy in this, are, are, are not mothers, are not biological mothers, right? That they are women who care for their teams, their friends, their families, you know, for, for the world around them, that their capacity for nurture is completely separate, you know, from the biological condition of being a mother, you know, and, and conversely, and I think we all can point to examples of this, there are many biological mothers out in the world that you wouldn't describe as nurturing. So it was trying to unpack the distinctions there so we could look at really what the practices um, and what the experience is, you know, and examine it in its own right. Yeah, you know, another another conversation around motherhood and, you know, how we view nurturing and maternal position as being, you know, less than in our culture. One of the things I noticed when my son started school was there was this kind of subtle segregation of mothers who worked and mothers who didn't work, mm-hmm. right? And I remember, you know, whenever I'd introduce myself to a new mom, if the topic would come up to, you know, what do you do for a living? I always felt that women who were considered themselves, quote unquote, just mothers or stay at home moms, they were almost apologetic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm projecting, but I felt they needed to explain why they weren't more than just a mother, quote unquote, you know, and that, I thought that was always interesting. Mm, you're not at all projecting. I mean, there's a reason why <laughs> in the years of the internet, there have been so many sort of online debates about the um, you know, about the positioning of stay-at-home moms versus working moms. And it is, you know, it, 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 this is actually a very good example of something that affects men as well. My husband has been a, a stay-at-home dad for years, you know, and, and he's felt it, right? It's a different for men, right? Men get more head pats, right? You know, they take their kids to the park and everybody's very charmed at like a man who, you know, <laughs> is willing to care for children, you know, but it's also <laughs> the, the, the role of caregiver in our society is considered secondary. It's private. It, it doesn't contribute to the larger or it's perceived as not contributing in the same way to the larger public good. We don't associate it with success or with power. And so, you know, for, for men like my husband, you know, they, they, they often have to struggle with this compounded by their own issues around masculinity, you know, with roles that are seen as inherently less powerful, right? Inherently less worthy, you know, and that's deeply, deeply problematic, right? It's, you know, all the obvious reasons we can point to that, like, that raising and caring for and teaching, you know, children is a crucially important work in the, in a good society, you know, but it's also that we're still continuing to devalue compassion and nurture and care and concern for the other when we devalue those things. And those are to the larger point of the book for both Amy and I, it's, you know, if, if we lived in a world in which we were all much more in touch with and proud of those qualities and willing to express them openly and share them, like how much better a world could we live in right now? Yeah. You know, Amy, you you offer an anecdote in the book about when you were younger, uh, meeting with girlfriends and, and you'd gossip, you'd meet for drinks and you'd gossip. Now, I think that you concluded that gossip was bad. Is that true? Because... <laughs> Well, that's funny that you ask because <laughs> Catherine and I had so many amazing conversations and even debates throughout the process. And this was one of them because we were trying to name that chapter and it, we ended up talking about being chatty versus being gossipy. Right. Um, and for me, the idea of encouraging gossip in that negative way was just a non-starter because I just felt like it's, it's not at all sort of aligned with the intention of what we're trying to do. And, and I knew that that was true for Catherine as well. It was just that we were trying to find the right language, which is so key when so much of this is about language. And yeah, it, it is kind of funny. I start the chapter talking about my experience in my early twenties 
and feeling like I had a group of friends that were gossipy in the bad way. And it made me really aware of what gossipy in the bad way was, which then over time allows us to better understand what gossipy in the good ways are, because it really does bring women together. We do need to unload stuff. We need to share things. We need to be able to lean on others. We need to be able to work through ideas with our friends and family. We need to be able to have this release. And the, the way we talk about it in the chapter really clearly delineates between the potentially bad gossipy kind of chatty and the good productive kind of chatty. And again, all couched in this overarching stereotype that we're all told, oh, you're being chatty again. You know, women are talkers, women are gossipers. <laughs> we're known that way. So we really wanted to break that one down. The negative connotations around gossip are a very, very good example of, you know, of negative framing of feminine stereotypes. We talk in the book about how, you know, the actual word gossip comes from the old English term godsib or god sibling and refers to intimate friendship, right? Like very, very close friendship. So the word itself, you know, originates in this idea of close, intimate talk. And there's been interesting research. One of the scholars that we cite in the book, Deborah Tannen, talks about the difference between talking against, you know, and talking about, right? You know, that there's the damaging, the bad gossip that Amy references, but then the more pervasive, positive, healthy talking about the sharing of social connection, the sharing of intimacies, the building of a social world through our conversation. Gossip came to be associated with the negative talk in part because it is so, so, so feminine coded, right? You know, because it is private talk, because it is a kind of social connectivity that can skew in problematic directions as, as anything can. But it's, you know, one of the reasons why we had so many discussions about it was that like gossip, right, was one of those words that ultimately we didn't include as a chapter title because it was, it was too loaded, right? To say, openly to like do gossip, right? Yeah. We, it's too hard to get past that particular baggage. But that's really, it's why we, we, we spend a couple of pages in that chapter, like unpacking, what does gossip mean? Where does it come from? What are the different kinds of social talk, women's ways of talking that we're talking about when we talk about gossip and other forms of social conversation? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting, it, it just kind of brings to light that that's another term that, you know, has a really simple definition. It just means, you know, two or more people analyzing something <laughs> and the conclusion may be negative and the conclusion may be positive, right? But, you know, it's not that men don't analyze other men or talk about other men, but that term gossip is exclusively applied to women. Exactly. Exactly. It, arguably one of the more, you know, the, of the elements in the book that I think are most explicitly and almost exclusively coded feminine, that that's one of them alongside mothering for sure. Yeah. And also bossy, right? Men mm -hmm. are the boss and women are bossy, yeah. right? Men are never called bossy, right? Nor are they ever called like gutsy, right? Like we've all, we've all got all of these <laughs> coded words for the female versions of things. And they are almost always less than, they're either negative or at least less than, Yeah, right? It's like a step behind brave, right? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a unique kind of slightly diminished sort of bravery in the way that gossip is this negative kind of social talk that is never used to apply to men or that bossy is this particular incarnation of, um, of assertiveness that's never applied to men. Yeah. Another harmless behavior that you call out is in the chapter called expressing yourself. Um, is there anything wrong with ending all of your sentences with three exclamation points? I mean, is there <laughs> <something>? <laughs> it's another one. And again, it's like you look so many are you like open up any issue of Forbes or anchor, you know, anything that's addressing, you know, women in the workplace. And there's almost always a piece on like managing, you know, your communications. Look, if it's inauthentic, it, it, it's problematic. Right. And there is such a thing as being too anything, too effusive, too enthusiastic. You know, I think if it comes off as as inauthentic or false, right, then it's something to look at. But if you're genuinely enthused, right, you know, if you're genuinely enthusiastic about something, if you do, you know, if you are excited, again, it's this question of trying to sort of peel back some of the baggage, right, and destigmatize some of these things and look at the women are, you know, whether you want to call it culturated or socialized or habituated to more enthusiastic forms of expression, right? And there's some, you know, research to back up the idea that women communicate more and, and more expressively and more enthusiastically, then, then, then why not make space 
for that. I include in the book sort of an anecdote about working with some 20 somethings some years ago, you know, at, you know, media company in New York and having initially this sort of viscerally negative reaction to the many, many exclamation points, you know, and emojis and like heart symbols and happy faces and that sort of thing. And then started to realize it's like that, you know, obviously one needs to be, one needs to be smart about to whom one communicates how at what time, right? So you wouldn't necessarily send the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, uh, you know, an email full of emojis and exclamation points. Um, but there, there should be space for being able to communicate, to, to be as expressive and enthusiastic and to some extent as emotional in written communication as we are in, in how we express ourselves, you know, personally and directly to other people. So it's the, sure, balance in all things, but also like, let's look at the ways in which we're actually pointing to a problem sometimes because it's coded feminine, because we associate it with the behaviors and actions of women rather than because there's a problem with it in its own right. The problem with any kind of communication when it's problematic is when it's false or inauthentic or or ineffective, right? And if an extra exclamation point can be communicate something more effectively in a certain communication, then then why not go for that? And it really, it goes back to this whole, she just mentioned it, but the whole conversation about authenticity, because for me, maybe using exclamation points less frequently works because I'm able to, I feel that I am expressing myself. And in other times, I feel like in this particular case, I really want to differentiate how excited I am about this from the other times when I use one exclamation point, I'm going to use five. So I think we just need to start to build in this inner voice where we're asking ourselves the question, what's appropriate here? Not just based on what we believe the culture wants and thinks, but for me, you know, what what really feels right? And how do I bring my personality and let myself shine through? Because it, so much of this is about us holding back. It's about us judging ourselves us having these second thoughts about things, questioning ourselves in ways that don't allow our full selves to shine through. So is there a level of appropriateness in the workplace? Sure. I mean, it's subjective. For each person, it would be different. And there, you might work in a law firm where exclamation points are simply not appropriate. And that's okay. You know, <laughs> you might work in a law firm where exclamation points are totally appropriate. I just think you got to feel it out and also go, you know what, if I'm in an environment that doesn't like exclamation points, and that's who I am, maybe I'm not in the right place. Yeah, I was just thinking of, you know, what like a deposition might look like or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking, well, you know, why not? Why should why shouldn't we just judge written communication on its content and not, you know, the punctuation that I I envisioned this deposition? I thought, oh, maybe not. But another, (laughs) you know, another irony is that the most powerful man in the nation, um, you know, and his written communication is very, you know, emotive. the use of capitalization and you know. cap. he sure is <laughs> yeah but no it's a, it's a testament to sort of how you know the double standard right that obviously you know we all you know recognize the the, the problems there but for many it's just he is he's honest and open right? He is who he is, right? There are all sorts of explanations we give for men who use or enact those kinds of stereotypes that when women do, we look at negatively. Also worth pointing out, this was, gosh, a couple of months ago, Joe Biden said that that Donald Trump communicates like a 16-year-old girl, right? You know, which was... <laughs> Oh, it was like, this, oh my God, Joe, why did you say that? Yeah. It's like the association of that, right? With girls, right? That only like, it's a sort of silly, um, vapid, superficial, emotional, unhinged, unpredictable kind of communication style that otherwise very progressive leader just immediately put squarely on the shoulders of teenage girls. Yeah, the thing that, and you didn't write about this in the book, but just reminded me of something else, you know, since we are on a podcast, (laughs) the criticism of women's voices and, you know, the whole vocal fry thing, that's always Mm. bothered me. (sighs) Anyway. Yeah, no, we police, we police women in the public space is really what it is, right? Is that because and it's some, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in the book throughout the chapters and in the introduction, so there's a long history of women's space being not just in the home, but in the private sphere in general 
right? You know, we're so accustomed to public spaces being defined as masculine that as women have moved into them, and this is why going back to your original question about feminism, why we think you can't have the conversation about feminism until you tackle femininity, because to the extent that feminism is pushing for the closure of these gaps and equal space and equal time and equal voice in the public sphere, we can't have that conversation if we talk about the ways in which women and girls get diminished in the public sphere and their their behaviors and their actions and their expressions and the things that are associate, associated with them get diminished in the public sphere. Those are questions concerning femininity, and that's why we felt it was so important to to tackle them for that social reason, but then as Amy has said a few times, you know, for the very personal reasons as well. So one of the chapters is titled Being Agreeable. And, you know, I think that's really interesting because it's contradictory in the way that we groom girls, right? We groom them to be agreeable and polite. But then as they mature, you know, at some point the messaging changes to, well, in order to be a strong woman, you need to reject the idea of being the good girl, quote unquote. You know, isn't that confusing? It's totally confusing. It's, you know, it's the whole, the mythology around the nice girl, you know, and the socialization around the nice girl is is really problematic for a couple of reasons. One of which is what you point out is that it's deeply contradictory, right? That that women and girls are socialized to value their agreeability as the highest, their, their highest social currency, and then get out into the world in which they're told that in order to be successful, they, they have to, you know, they, they have to push it down, right? So you get campaigns that are all hashtag unapologetic, right? It's like, speak your mind, you know, don't be the nice girl. Um, And it's problematic because it's in the contemporary, you know, especially contemporary girl power messaging where we're pushing back against the nice girl mythology. It's important to unpack the nice girl training that we get, but not at the cost of what it represents, right? So, you know, to, to put it differently and to put it in the, you know, in, in the context that we do in the chapter on being agreeable, it, it's looking at what are the characteristics of the nice girl archetype, you know, that, that are actually really important, right, of, of being polite. I'm Canadian, so I'm predisposed, right? So it's not just gender coding for me, it's also Canadianness. Yeah. you know, the, the, the being polite, the being attentive to how others might respond to you, that sort of there's a kind of sort of low level social caregiving that attends to being agreeable and being nice. It is arguably really, really, really important and really valuable and something that we shouldn't try to train out of ourselves, you know, when we move into adulthood and, and, and want to um, want to climb a ladder or move it, get ahead or whatever it is that we're looking for. So it, it's an argument for looking carefully at the nice girl archetype. And this is one of the chapters that, again, that we, you know, we went back and forth a lot about at one point, it was be the nice girl. And then we decided that it was too, this sort of the nice girl mythology was sort of, it was sort of too problematic in its own way, you know? And so what we needed to get to was what's at the core of it. It's like, it's, it's being a good person, right? So taking the ways that we are absolutely socialized and looking at them for how powerful they can be so that we can hang on to the best of it and use it in the right, most constructive ways rather than being, you know, and, and use it authentically, right? Because the, the other piece of this is that to the extent that we're acculturated to the nice girl archetype, we're discouraged from even thinking about it or giving it careful thought, right? So even if you are a less agreeable person and there are plenty of people out there who just aren't disposed to be nicey nice, right? It just might not feel right for you. So it's just, you know, as, as with all of the chapters, it's a, you know, it's, it's a plea to sort of consider the worth in these stereotypes and postures and identities, you know, and, and then to look at how do they apply to you? How can you make the best of them? Or how can, how can you make the most authentic work of them for yourself? I'm also glad you brought up the idea of the fact that these things, these messages are at odds with each other. And that's part of what we loved about the whole process of identifying what ended up being 21 and could have been far more qualities because they are totally contradictory. So we're given a hard time as women for being too agreeable. We're also given a hard time for being controlling. We're given a hard time for things that are completely at odds with each other. So there's a, it's a no win situation. And we wanted to sort of expose that and break that down and say, look, so much of this is about how we're perceiving these things and how we're understanding them and how we are 
embodying them. And if we can really break some of that down and start to look at it in a new way and embrace the powerful parts of them, then we don't have to live in this world of conflict where we're feeling guilty all the time for being too agreeable or for being too controlling, which, by the way, could exist in the same human being very easily. Um, and that's part of the beauty of being a woman. <laughs> I am that. I'm an agreeable, controlling person. It's entirely me. <laughs> You know, it's funny that you mentioned controlling because I was thinking that, you know, there was a, I guess, a study that came out or survey that came out that said that only 52% of Americans were comfortable with a woman being president, right? I saw that, yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking that that's just, I, I just found that absurd. Like, why isn't it 100%? Like, <laughs> like what yeah. is the reservation, this collective view of women that keeps us from, you know, seeking those most powerful roles? It's a great question. I mean, I wish that they had dug a little deeper in the research and the polling to understand what it is specifically, but I'm t pretty sure people wouldn't even be able to articulate it if they tried. Yeah, you know, it would be interesting to turn it on its head and 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 ask them, you know, how many people would would be comfortable with a man being president? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, but it's interesting. You think too. You look at you look at conversations about COOs, right? And there was a LinkedIn piece that that just came out today on the you know on the ideal of Sheryl Sandberg, right? And we we are we do tend to be comfortable with women in secondary roles in supporting roles, right? Which is one of the of the nuances to us unpacking the idea of, of being supportive, you know, or playing a supporting role. We are more comfortable in the public sphere with that secondary character being a woman, but then we put a huge amount of responsibility on her shoulders, right? She's the one that's expected to tidy up, right? It's the sort of, it's the Wendy syndrome of Peter Pan and Wendy, right? Peter Pan gets to have the adventures and be charismatic and get all the attention, you know, and Wendy's basically being the grown up. Um, we wouldn't make Wendy president, right? At least in the culture we're currently living in, we'd put the flighty Peter Pan, you know, in the seat of power, but then expect sort of a universe of women around him to take care of things. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you about the chapter, um, own your sexual power. So what messaging are we giving women about owning or not owning their sexual power? Well, I'll just start because there's a really specific thing that occurred to me as we've been talking about this that helps bring it to life for me. First of all, Obviously, we recognize what a sensitive topic this is in light of Me Too and all the other conversations going on. And we also recognize that like with each of these things, for each person, the way you define that and describe that and live that would be completely different. So one of the things my agency does on my other life, other than now being a co-author, is we represent amazing female athletes. And when I started the business, we were focused exclusively on that because no one was focused on female athletes and no one was really investing in women's sports because people didn't feel there was money in women's sports. And you'd see um, on occasion female athletes break through, but really it was in a couple sports like tennis that have tons of television coverage. And it, it came down to similar metrics really to anything. It's like at the end of the day, how much TV time are they getting? How many marketing dollars are spent behind them to blow them up into bigger brands? It's just, it's a sort of marketing 101 case study. Uh, but, but things obviously over the past 12 years since they started the business have shifted substantially. When I first started, I had really strong opinions about the handful of female athletes, gorgeous female athletes who would take their clothes off for magazines like Playboy or FHM or Maxim, some of which I'm not even sure are still around, honestly. But I remember thinking, wow, it's such a shame that they feel that they need to do that because it's really going to pigeonhole them into the specific type of brand that is going to be appealing to men, but women aren't going to like that. I mean, that's, they're limiting themselves and they must feel that that's their only option is to leverage their looks. And I was definitely super judgmental about it. And I, there were a couple of athletes I would think about every single time I would have this kind of conversation with the athletes I was representing saying, I just don't want you to feel like you have to go down that path. What I should have said is, I'm not really sure if this is the right path for you, but ultimately you're the one that needs to figure that out. Because what I realized years later is that a couple of those women that were taking their clothes off regularly for those magazines, they loved doing it. It made them feel powerful. It wasn't because they felt that they could only get marketing exposure by doing that. It's because that was who they were. And I was being judgmental about it. And 
by the way, a big theme throughout this whole conversation is that lots of times we're judging each other and labeling things and using language that's holding other women back. And this was a perfect example of where I was doing that. So I think in the end, leveraging your sexual power could be as subtle as what I talk about in the beginning of the chapter, which is I have a massive lingerie collection. I love it. For me, when I wear the lingerie, it's not just for the men in my life, although I'm thrilled if they're excited about it too. <laughs> it's because I love that it makes me feel a certain way and that it it puts me into this girly, frivolous, fun space or this super sexy kind of hot space. And it makes me feel different from how I would feel without it. So whether that's living a fantasy or whatever else it is, it does make me feel powerful. And it does make me feel like I have this superwoman outfit on underneath my clothes, whether people know it or not. So um, that is one way at it for me and helps me get into a place that feels powerful. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily wearing short skirts and low cut blouses to the office. By the way, I work with all women, so they probably would literally look at me like I had three heads if I started doing that. But um, but I could, by the way. And, you know, I think part of it's just, again, figuring out what feels authentic and how to start to let these other parts of ourselves shine through. And it's not necessarily literally showing more skin, but it's allowing that part of ourselves to be a part of the bigger picture because it's another perfect example of something that's been repressed and potentially is more repressed than ever as a result of things like Me Too, where women don't even feel like we can show those parts of ourselves without it being dangerous, which is a huge problem. And it is, I, I just add that, I mean, the question here is not, it's not about how to be, you know, the, the exhortation isn't to be more sexually domineering, right? It's owning your own sexual power. That is to say, understanding, embracing who you are as a sexual being, because, you know, throughout history, women have been at best marginalized at worst demonized for owning their sexual agency, right? The, you know, the whole, the, the Jezebel, the harlot, the slut, the whore, our origin story, a Christian origin, Judeo-Christian origin story is one of a, of a woman leading a man astray because of her sexuality. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, but it's not about the you know, that this question of becoming, again, domineering or aggressive in your sexuality, it's about just asking the question of what is it? Like, what is your sexual power? Who are you as a sexual being? Granted, understanding you live in a world in which that's, that's dangerous, right? You know, women are actively discouraged from sort of exploring who they are as sexual beings, whatever that is going to look like for them. But it's a crucial piece of the puzzle, right? You know, that if we detach ourselves from our sexuality, if we compartmentalize or push aside or tell ourselves that it's somehow wrong or shameful to embrace, you know, and celebrate our sexuality, that then we're cutting off a big piece of who we are as authentic beings and understanding who we are as, as women, as girls, as, you know, whatever your gender identity, you would all identify in the female spectrum, then understanding what your own experience is of your sexuality and finding out what it is that brings you most in touch with that, most comfortable with that, you know, is a, is a crucially important thing to do. Yeah. I think the thing that I, that I get from this is that what's the point of expecting women to reject, you know, this kind of patriarchal messaging or this overall messaging about what women should or shouldn't be. But then once they do that demand that they embrace the opposite, right? It, it just kind of removes a woman's agency in, in either position. Yeah, no, it's a, you know, it, it's a rock and a hard place, which is why we, we believe, you know, I would say no, that, that sort of the pathway through that is to find out what the answer is for you, right? To Amy's point about the female athletes, I, I think we all need to be aware of and critical of the male gaze, right? And patriarchal expectations. But if we can hold those in one hand and then ask ourselves, what makes me feel good as a woman, as whoever I am, you know, what makes me feel most in touch with my erotic self, right? Um, and find my own pathway into that question in, in a way that keeps in mind that we have been acculturated and socialized to, to look at female sexuality in a certain way and to heap all sorts of baggage on it. I mean, it, it's really the only way we can start kind of opening up these conversations. So, so in closing, what's the internal narrative that you're hoping to shift with women, if at all, right? You know, what are you hoping that we begin to tell ourselves or allow ourselves to do? Well, first and foremost, to be ourselves and allow our 
feminine qualities and feminine strengths and really the best parts of ourselves to shine through, especially if we haven't been. So to take a look and say, look, I have all these untapped powers. How do I start to, on a day-to-day basis, integrate them in the way I'm living my life and then watch the world change in positive ways? I would add that I think the experience that we want the reader to have is along the lines of what you described early on of, uh, of going into it and perhaps saying, oh, that's not me, right? Or I disagree. <laughs> but then continuing to ask the question, allowing those moments of, you know, big or small revelation of, oh, maybe this is more like me than I thought. Or maybe if I thought about this differently, I would think differently about a different part of myself so that we can get at what Amy has described a few times of, to, to that authentic experience. You know, and again, you know, it's our, our personal experience of being able to ask ourselves honestly, who are we as women? right? Who are we, you know, in these bodies, in this world, with these identities, with these expectations? Who are we collectively? And how do we understand how we understand each other and how we support and don't support each other around those expectations? And then who are we individually? And what does that mean for how we can shape and reshape the world around us? You know, that if as individual women, girls, boys, men, can get to a place where we can ask ourselves really openly about the value and worth of our emotions, of sensitivity, of nurture, compassion, all of these things, then I think we get to a place where we enrich ourselves personally, which again, you know, is a a key objective of the book, but also collectively that we open up possibility for a world in which we are thinking about these things differently. I think that, I I think that we would regard it as a success if, if individual opinions and lives were shifted a little bit by the book, but we'd also consider it a success if we're just opening up a few conversations that ask questions about how we've socially and culturally understood these ideas for so, so long, and maybe begin going down a path where we can start shifting those expectations in a different direction. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that I added this book to my library. I think it's going to help me grow and kind of round out, you know, my, my growth as, as a feminist and as a woman. So anyhow, well, Amy and Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. We loved it too. And we're really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And again, the book is The Feminine Revolution. Actually, the full title is The Feminine Revolution, 21 Ways to Ignite the Power of Your Femininity for a Brighter Life and a Better World. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes and on electorate.com. Also, please let me know what you think about the podcast. It's hard to know how I'm doing, so please leave a review on iTunes or go to facebook.com slash electorate and leave a message or a comment. And until next time, keep up the good fight.